Goodnight Winchester. I'm your host, Lance Gunner Wines, and this is another humble episode of Late Nights with Lance. And, you know, I have been thinking about what kind of content I want to do, and, you know, following the Dave Matthews saga, but I have a lot going on in my life, and I think it would just be really helpful and, you know, at least healthy for me to get it out there and, you know, get it into someone's ears or at least get it off my chest, you know, off my heart uh, and talk about it. So I have some things that I want to talk about that are uncomfortable, you know, they're not, uh, you know, lighthearted, fun, easy topics, but they're things that I, I, I feel like I need to say and that I want to say and, um, you know, I don't know if they're necessarily going to help me or help anyone listening, but they're just things that are going on in my life that I want to talk about. And, you know, maybe uh, they'll have some sort of, you know, connection to you. Maybe they'll ring true to someone else. But, you know, they're just things that I'm currently experiencing that I want to talk about and I need to talk about. And, um, you know, there's always there's always someone going through something similar to you. So you never know, um, you know, what you say and, and how it could help people or how it could affect people. Um, so, you know, I might as well get started and jump right into it. Um, you know, this really, a lot of this starts, I mean, there's different places I could start this, but it it really comes down to a few months ago, um, you know, Bob noticed that he had lost a, a lot of muscle mass in his left arm and was starting to lose muscle mass in his right arm. But the, uh, degeneration of the muscle tissue in his left arm was pretty severe, uh, to the point where it looked, you know, disformed. And so he went to the doctor and, you know, after a few doctor visits, he learned that he has some sort of, you know, um, nerve issue in his spine that, you know, I think that the vertebrae in his spine have constricted uh, and restricted the nerves that go from, I guess, you know, his nervous system into his, his arms just from wear and tear, you know, from years of wear and tear and, and hard manual labor um, to the point where his nerves aren't really doing anything in his arms. Uh, and this has led to, uh, I guess, you know, lack of muscle training, um, like the basic muscle training that we have when we do physical activity to the point where he's lost the muscle mass in his arm. And it's pretty severe. And the uh, way to resolve that issue is through a pretty invasive surgery, um, in his upper spine, you know, his, uh, upper spine neck region. And, uh, you know, there's the potential for them to actually have to go in through the front, uh, of his body through, you know, his, I guess, um, I don't know what the, what the proper term is, but there's a, there's a chance that they would have to go in like through his neck or like his collarbone area to reach his spine from the front of his body, uh, to, I guess, you know, alleviate those issues, uh, reform or restructure his vertebrae, realign his spine to allow for his nerves to essentially breathe, right? And so this is obviously very invasive, very it's scary, right? It's extremely scary. Um, and so that's, that's really where this started, right? Because, you know, fast forward uh, a few months now, and... Bob comes home from work early one day, and he's essentially laid off. Uh, he shows me a letter that the owners of his company uh, had given to him, and similar to letters that they had given to other employees. And uh, this company, which I believe is based in Rhode Island, had purchased the Winchester plant, which at the time was Creative Urethanes, 
Um, and they had, they're known for creating the polyurethane skateboard wheel and other uh, polyurethane or, you know, durable plastic parts uh, for things. They've been purchased by this company uh, from Rhode Island and Winchester. They had purchased a, num- a number of companies, uh, and Winchester was, was one of those now satellite uh, facilities, manufacturing facilities. And due to COVID, due to cost, due to whatever, you know, misfortune due to the state of the world, the company has decided that it is in their best interest financially uh, to close down the doors to the Winchester facility and move all of their operations back to their principal place of business in Rhode Island. And they pretty much gave Bob, you know, the ultimatum, like, hey, you can, you know, move your family, you can move and bring your family uh, to Rhode Island, and you have a job there for you if you'd like. Um, or, you know, you could work until we shut our doors permanently, at which time, you know, we can negotiate or work on your retirement plan. Uh, or, you know, you could look for other employment and, you know, we'll, you know, write you a letter of recommendation. We'll help you with, you know, days off you need for interviews and, and you know, I guess travel expenses to do interviews. Uh, but essentially, you know, one of three options, the only, you know, one of the three options is you stay, you go to Rhode Island. The other two are essentially you work until you're you're done and we try to give you the best retirement plan we can at this time. Or, you know, you start looking for other jobs and we try to help you as much as we can in that transition. And, you know, as much as I'm gung-ho to move to Rhode Island, my family really isn't. Um, and so because my family isn't really gung-ho to move to Rhode Island... And we're not really in the financial uh, place, so to speak, for Bob to retire at this age, even though he's, you know, in his, I guess, early 60s now, um, or he will be 60. Let me do that math. He will be 60 this year, 2021. He was born in 1961. He's turning 60. He's not really in a place where, you know, he can retire yet, you know, which is unfortunate. Um and so the other option is he has to look for other work. But the thing is, this the surgery that he needs is going to be, you know, mostly paid for by his insurance benefits from his employer, right? His, uh, you know how the insurance industry works in the United States. And it appears that now there's sort of a time constraint or a time limit on, you know, how quickly he needs to have this procedure done, not just so that it can be paid for with his insurance that he gets through working for, you know, creative urethanes. Um, but also because, you know, you imagine trying to find a new job or start over at the age of 60, and then imagine trying to do that, start over, find a new job at the age of 60, and your body is failing. And it almost makes for the perfect storm. And that has caused a lot of distress in my family. Right. As you can imagine, Um, I mean, I pretty much live in a perpetual state of distress, but these are like all my worst nightmares coming to coming to life, you know, and um, seeing all these things. And and these are things that, you know, I'll get into more that these are things that I I foresaw and foretold, uh, but I wasn't really taken seriously. And now we're in it. And it's it's, you know, mildly inappropriate to say, I told you so. Uh, when your life is falling apart and someone else's life is falling apart, right? Um, so that's pretty much where we are um, up to today. 
Uh, just a short synopsis. That's probably the shortest story I've ever told in my life. But uh, yeah, Bob has this serious degenerative, uh, you know, nervous muscular condition and needs to have very invasive surgery that will not only cost a lot of money and the risk to his life is severe, but the, you know, healing process, the recovery process will also take uh, months. You know what I mean? So it's sort of all of these terrible things are happening to him at this time where it's like now you don't have the time. This is like the one this is the one time in his life where he doesn't have the time. And it is causing a lot of distress, a lot of, you know, uh, mental health, I think, issues. I think it's bringing a lot of things to light, uh, which it, you would normally think is good. But in this exact instance, isn't really that good. So today um, I woke up. You know, and I, I would say uh, late morning, right? Like before noon, obviously, but I'm, it's my day off. Um, so I wake up and I go have breakfast, which is around 11, 1130. And uh, the phone rings and it's Bob's sister, Cindy, right? Cindy's like, hey, is Bob there? What's Bob doing? I'm like, well, he's been working the same schedule for like the last 15 years, pretty much. He's asleep, you know what I mean? And, and But he got up because he heard the phone. And Cindy had called to ask about uh, his next doctor's appointment, which apparently I guess he was scheduling today or something or other. I don't know, you know. So then uh, the, I guess he calls the doctor and schedules his next appointment, which hopefully is like a pre-op type thing, like a consultation about the actual surgery because he's had to quit smoking and, and had to and not be smoking for a certain amount of time uh, because of the effects that, I guess, nicotine and other uh, chemicals in tobacco cigarettes has on, um, I was going to say euthanasia. What is it? Um, you know, when they put you under, I can't think of what the anesthesia, right? <laughs> euthanasia. Might as well be, but anesthesia. Uh, and so, uh, you know, because of the effects that, that the chemicals in tobacco cigarettes has on your body and how it interacts with the anesthesia, you have to uh, rid that rid your body of those chemicals um, for a certain period leading up to the surgery. And so I guess he called the doctor, and his next appointment would be sometime in November. I think he said like November 18th or something like that. Um, and so he called Cindy, uh, Cindy and told her, and then I guess my mom called, or he called my mom, um, and they were on the phone, and my mom wasn't very happy with that. Um, she's, you know, extremely impatient. I'll get into that a little bit more. But that started uh, a conflict that I overheard. And um, so, you know, the, essentially, you know, it comes down to um, the thing that my mom always talks about, right? And if you, if you listen to any of my podcasts or you know me personally at pretty much any level, but especially if you know me personally or intimately, um, you know the one thing that my mom always brings up, which is the most important thing to her, is money. And, you know, before I go any further, you know, I, I'm not going to... It's not, There's no excuse, I think, for what she says and what she does, but I think there is a reason, right? There's a reason, but it's not justification. There's a reason, but it's not, it's not an excuse. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, because of her position in her family, she was the, the youngest, you know, she was the last child, she was the youngest. Uh, and because of the age of her siblings and the age of uh, her parents 
and, you know, dealing with her parents' separation, she really had to be financially independent from a young age, right? And back then, it was, um, it's not that it's impossible now, but it was it was easier back then. It was different back then, um, you know, just because of the cost of things, inflation, the market, how capitalism has devolved. You know what I mean? Like, this was before, you know, Ronald Reagan has completely destroyed uh, any chance of an American dream. And so she grew up where, you know, she had to be financially independent. And because of the, you know, way of the world, the state of the world, they could be done. And then, you know, she built up her own financial literacy, her financial independence. And, you know, while her siblings were sometimes um, picked up by her parents, right? So my grandparents, not that I don't think they ever played favorites. I don't I couldn't tell you if I could sit here for hours and weigh the the um, you know the ideas of that, whether they had favorites. Uh, but certainly some siblings needed more help than others, and they were willing to give those. And it wasn't necessarily fair, right? Or maybe it was fair, but it wasn't equal. And that's something that my mom has always held a grudge for is, you know, some of her siblings needed more financial help than others, and my grandparents were there to provide that. But it was almost like, you know, my mom never needed help, and therefore she never got anything, which you can build a resentment in that way, Right. And then obviously with things with my dad, when we were impoverished and homeless for a time following their split and had to move in with my grandparents, you know, we really, during that time period, especially in in that time where my parents were together, um, my mom experienced financial insecurity in a way that she hadn't experienced before. Uh, And of course, being that she was a a new parent, a young parent, um, that really motivated her to, I guess, you know, secure the bag more. be more conservative financially. And, you know, I get that because I don't, I never want to go back to where we were. Uh, I know that the main reason that I got interested in politics and law was to prevent other people from having the financial insecurity that I experienced as a child. Um, and that's something that I hold close to the chest, right? I, I, I close to the vest, uh, for sure. And so, you know, that's sort of her, I think that that's, the explanation for why she's so, I don't want to say frugal, because it's not even frugal, um, so anti-spending. And so in that regard, you know, we're, we're dealing with this crisis in the family where, you know, Bob needs to have this surgery, which if it cost me for, you know, not even a full 24 hours in the hospital, but, you know, having the surgery to remove my appendix, if I had the appendectomy, uh, and an overnight stay in the hospital, and that you know racked up a bill of like thirty five grand. Of course, I didn't have to pay any of it because I was a poor college student, and they knew that they weren't going to get any money from me, so they didn't even bother. Um, you know that sort of forgiveness, right? Um, if an appendectomy and an overnight stay in a hospital, like a room or a bed in a hospital, cost thirty five grand, I imagine rebuilding your spine is probably going to cost you know, a quarter of a mil, right? I mean, that could definitely be upwards of two hundred thousand. Uh, if not, you know, certainly more, um, especially the amount of time it might, you might have to be in the hospital, you know, for uh, post-surgery recovery and whatever. So, you know, I can imagine that that's, that's more frightening and they are not poor college students with no income. They are adults with insurance, which means that they have some sort of income and the hospital is going to be less forgiving. And 
so that's the case that, you know, if the surgery is likely to cost, you know, let's just, let's just say quarter of a mil, which I wouldn't be surprised if it did. Um, and then Bob is essentially laid off from his job and, and, you know, essentially, you know, it's foreseeable that he's going to lose his insurance benefits from his employer. There's no way that we can pay for that out of pocket, right? I don't think that every generation of my family combined has ever seen a quarter of a million dollars, you know, at least not in a lump sum total, right? You know, I mean, maybe if you had all of my, my mom and Bob's earnings from their life put together without ever spending a dime, then probably, sure. But I don't think that we've ever had any sort of assets or I don't think that any of my uh, generations of my family uh, has ever had the assets to amount to that much money, especially considering uh, inflation. So it's, you know, the fact that I can't imagine generations of my family racking up, you know, a net sum of, um, you know, quarter of a million dollars. I can imagine that we're going to get it somehow in the next three months, you know, to pay for the surgery out of pocket. And that's sort of the, uh, that's sort of the, the crucible, I guess, of the American, uh, medical system, right? That's sort of our healthcare system. That's, that's the issue. And, um, you know, I think that that's a concern that we all recognize. It's one that I said, it's one that I pointed out years ago, right? So this is sort of one of the I told you shows where I pointed this out a long time ago. Um, you know, it, it's part of it is, is your own sort of getting my parents, uh, grounded in the reality of today, not the reality of 1983, um, where things were different back then. Right. And so they like, my mom is like, you know, say she'll give me uh, some money to go out to dinner. She'll give me a $20 bill. Be like, all right, that's cool, dude. Like, go out to any restaurant in town, get dinner, $20 bill. And if you go to Chipotle or fast food, you know, if you go to fast food um, or, you know, casual dining or maybe maybe some sit-down restaurants, you know, depending on what you get to drink, if you don't get a soda, maybe you can eat for 20 bucks with a slim tip, right? So if you go to fast food, which is like McDonald's, Wendy's, Arby's, whatever, even Arby's is expensive. So maybe McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's is fast food. Um, casual um, it would be like Chipotle or I guess like Subway or, or something, you know, like sort of a make your own. And then, you know, a sit down would be more of a like fr- TGI Fridays, Red Lobster, whatever. I mean you know, you're kind of hitting a, a wall there where $20, you know, back in 1983 could pay for two people you know, for like a date night. Now it's $20, you know, I mean, let's just say the average meal is like 15 bucks, right? That's not including tax. And then depending on what you get to drink, whether you get water or, or soda or whatever, it definitely not if you get, you cannot get any alcohol with 20 bucks. Um, and she's like, why is everything so expensive? All you do is spend money. All you do is, you know, this, that, and the other. It's like, mom, you know, I appreciate your generosity in giving me this money to feed me, but I would rather not accept it if it means having to explain, you know, the failures of trickle-down economics, uh, supply and demand, inflation. I don't want to have to explain, you know, a, a whole semester's worth of basic economics to you every time you give me $20 for dinner, you know what I mean? I'd rather not, I'd rather just not accept it at all than have to, you know, accept the $20, but then justify, 
um, the spending based off of explaining costs of food production, employment, you know, wage, uh, labor, uh, hourly labor, you know, and, and, and things like that. So, you know, explaining to them like, hey, you know, this is not only an, an everyday thing you have to come to terms with. Like, I'm tired of, you know, my parents coming home every day and saying, oh, I can't believe, you know, you won't believe how much this is when I totally believe it because I understand how society works. You know, like you won't believe how much a pound of bacon is or a gallon of gas. And it's like, well, yeah, I do because I'm not I didn't exist in the 80s and I don't compare everything to when I was 18 I compare everything to how I've lived the last 26 years, and this has been how it's been for the last 26 years. So you're just not, you just haven't been keeping up with the times, I guess, you know, because there's nothing, it's nothing new. You know, there's that, but then there's also the voting aspect of it where, hey, you know, we need socialism, we need universal health care. I hate the term Medicare for all because they're just playing on key words to sort of win over an audience that only cares about Medicare because they're on Medicare. Um, right. You know, you know, the group I'm talking about and, but it's not, that's not what it is, right? You call it Medicare for all because, Hey, they're like, Hey, we're on, we're older, you know, lesser income white conservatives and we're on Medicare and that's pretty good. And so people, you know, the left thinks, well, they like their Medicare. So maybe they'll like, maybe they'll think, Oh yeah, Medicare is great. We can give that to everyone. But they fail to consider that those people, you know, I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to try not to name names. Those people like socialism for me, not socialism for we. And that, unfortunately, I don't necessarily know where the age barrier is for that. It appears to be some somewhere in the mid 40s is apparently, I think, where the where the switch is, um, where they understand, uh, you know, sociocentric versus egocentric, um, you know, putting the needs of of the many over the needs of the few. Um, but that obviously is not my parents, right? You know, my parents are in a certain generation of a certain generation where I'm like, Hey, it's sort of like that, the SpongeBob meme with Patrick and Man Ray. Uh, and it's like, this is your wallet. And it's like, no, it's like, well, this is your, this is an ID. Yeah. It says Patrick star. Yeah. You're Patrick star. Yeah. So this must be your wallet. And that's not my wallet. And it's like, well, you know that the cost of things has gone up due to inflation uh, and, you know, uh, the minimum wage and and the value of labor not increasing with the cost of goods and services. And like, yeah, things have gotten more expensive due to inflation, which is the simplest way to put it. Sure. OK, well, that means that healthcare has gotten more expensive. Sure. And there's no uh, it's you know, there's this sort of um, insurance industry uh, pseudo government racket where they can levy the costs because of how they manipulate and they can manipulate the market because of how they get their income. So it's not, it's not just a steady growth in cost of medical, medical services. It's not a steady growth. It's an exponential growth because that's how they get their profit, right? They derive their profit from the insurance market, uh, and they can manipulate that market because it's unchecked. And they're like, okay, yeah. And basically, you have to simple it down to, well, doctors and healthcare workers make a lot of money, right? So therefore, because they make a lot of money, therefore, things must cost a lot for them to have a lot. And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. And it's like, well, 
people don't make the same amount of money as doctors, right? Like you don't get paid as much as someone who went to med school and now is a neurosurgeon. They're like, yeah, that makes sense. All right. So we should have some sort of system in place to, uh, you know, sort of, uh, mitigate that issue. Right. It, at least at the very least meet in the middle. Right. Which would be like a basic form of, of socialism, like a, a basic form of like democratic socialism where, yeah, you know, we're not, the government's not in complete control of the market. It's not completely subsidizing the market, but there is some sort of, you know, the invisible hand is not so invisible anymore. And there's an actual hand. We're getting away from laissez-faire, essentially. You're like, well, there should be some system in place to check the medical industry so that costs don't rise exponentially and the value of your labor doesn't rise at all. They're like, yeah, that makes sense. And it's like, okay, well, then let's have universal health care. And they're like, no, that's socialism. And it's like, okay, well, lots of things are socialism, but that's not really the point. Uh, but, you know, you're trying to explain that to them. And it's like, well, why do you, they're always like, why, you know, you're young, you care about things and like, you know, loan, student loan forgiveness, universal education, things like that. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, if I guarantee that if someone came to your door and said, hey, here's a check for a million dollars to cover your medical expenses for the rest of your life, you're not going to turn that away because that's a handout. So why do you assume that everyone else you know, I, I just don't understand, like, you, that's hypocritical, right? You know what I mean? Like, you, you you don't want other people to, you know, quote-unquote accept handouts, which is not how it works, because these are entitlement programs, because you're entitled to the benefits of your tax revenue. Um, but you consider them handouts when everyone else gets it, but when you get it, it's what you deserve, right? And it's like, you're fine with that, but the moment it helps someone else, you're like, no, no, who's, who's, who is subsidizing that, right? That's what they say. They're like, well, I'm subsidizing my own benefits, but who's subsidizing their benefits? And it's like, well, they aren't they, right? Everyone pay t- pays taxes unless you're wealthy. And they're like, well, the poor people don't pay enough taxes to subsidize their own benefits. That's how people look at it, right? The poor people don't pay, cannot possibly pay enough taxes to subsidize their own benefits. And it's like, yeah, but some things shouldn't be prizes that you hold over people's heads for a high income, right? Like the ability to live free of disease or free of injury or free of health insecurity isn't a prize you hold over someone's head for making more money than you do. The, you know, the freedom to live healthy, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, let's just boil it down to life. The freedom to have a healthy life isn't a it's not a privilege right that's not a privilege that should be something every human deserves doesn't you know like dave matthew said doesn't everyone deserve to have the good life everyone deserves to have a working heart a working brain a working liver a working working arms uh you know and, and it's like yeah but they don't pay enough to to earn it is what they're saying and it's like okay well neither do the wealthy people don't either they're like well they have a high income and it's like yeah but that doesn't mean that but that's not what we're saying here. It's it shouldn't be income based. It should be tax. Should be the portion that you pay in taxes. And at that regard, then the super wealthy deserve nothing because they pay nothing, right? Whereas even the impoverished pay more taxes than the super wealthy. But they're like, no, it's based off of income, which is again because of the laissez faire or semi laissez faire market that we have in the United States. You know, the hands off market of our version of capitalism. That means that their income has nothing to do with their government entitlements, right? Like, do you want it to? Like, do you want someone's income to be a measure of their government entitlements? Because, boy, I got a system for you. It's called socialism. Um, 
but you know, then it's a whole thing. And so it's like hard to explain to them, Hey, you know, it looks like your tax dollars are going to help people and not you right now who may have health issues. You may be, you're right. You may be subsidizing some kids, uh, heart transplant or some person's leukemia treatment or some person's ICU visit. But like, do you really hate other, do you really hate strangers enough that you don't want to help a, a kid, an eight year old get a heart transplant? You know what I mean? Like, is that something that you're opposed to? And you're not paying, you're not paying the whole thing. There's no way that an individual pays enough taxes to afford all of that. Right. And so like you're subsidizing a portion of someone's, you know, necessary vital transplant or cancer therapy or whatever, what have you. And it's like, okay, well, one, you aren't altruistic enough to want to help even a fraction of that. And two, you would want someone to help you if that was you, right? Because you're not going to be able to pay for that. So wouldn't you want someone to help you? And and that's the thing is, you know, you say, well, this could happen to you. And they're like, yeah, but, and then they do some sort of mental gymnastics to explain the but to it. But there's never a good but to that. It's like, it could happen to you. And they're like, but, you know, we have more money or but, you know, like that could be in the future. And they don't care about the future. They only care about the present. In the past, apparently. Um, they care more about the past than the future for some reason. And it's like, okay, well, you know, but this could happen to you. And you could need that help one day. And wouldn't you want to have voted to put the the systems and safeguards in place to help you when you have a medical emergency that you can't afford? And, you know, have, you know, a tax system that is, is based off of, you know, income so that the rich pay their fair share and we can afford these programs just like every other developed country in the world. And they're like, no. And now here we are where, you know, the impossible becomes possible and and becomes reality. And they're like, well, there's no way we can afford this. And it's like, well, what have I been saying for the last decade? Just because I'm young doesn't mean I'm stupid. Right. This isn't Matilda. You know what I mean? Like I'm big, you're little. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm smart, you're dumb. You know what I mean? Like this, you know, this isn't like that, dude. Like just because I'm younger than you, I didn't need a political science degree to tell you that our system of, you know, our our pseudo-democratic capitalist society uh, in the United States is going to cause more harm than good and that our healthcare system is going to, you know, completely destroy a generation of Americans I didn't, I didn't need a degree to tell you that. I could have told you that just watching the news. Um, well, I guess, you know, depending on what news you watch, I guess. And, you know, I also didn't need a law degree to tell you that. I didn't need to go to college for seven years to tell you that one medical emergency would bankrupt our family because I could just look at how much a hospital visit costs and then look at our annual income and what we have in terms of um, in the bank account, you know, in terms of uh, what assets we have. And I could tell you that one hospital visit would, would ruin us. And I didn't need a degree for that. But apparently, you know, they didn't care to listen to me because I was a kid or their kid, at least, till it happened. And so now here we are. And I can't really be like, I told you so. Right. And um, it's sort of like, you know, if someone if someone is not vaccinated or doesn't wear a mask and then they contract covid, you can't be like, hey, I told you so while they're being intubated or if someone dies of covid because they didn't, you know, get the vaccine or wear a mask or they were they were anti-vax and, you know, all that shit. And then they die. You can't go to their funeral and be like, damn, sucks to be that guy. You know, if only there was a way for for this to be prevented. It's like school shootings in the United States. It's basically every 
every social issue in the United States is almost like, damn, you know, it's almost as if we're the only country that doesn't do anything about these things. It's almost like these preventable things are unpreventable, not because the prevention is impossible, but because we're unwilling to prevent them. Um, but you can't do that, right? You can't go to like, you know, Virginia, the Virginia Tech, um, you know, Memorial or to like Sandy Hook or to, you know, um, Columbine and be like, man, sucks we haven't done anything about this. Uh, you know, that's what newspaper articles are for, I guess. That's what editorials are for. Uh, and you can't go to the hospital and go to all the unvaccinated people that are dying and be like, I bet you really wish you had that vaccine now, don't you, dumbass? You know what I mean? You can't do that. Uh, and you can't do that to your family in these emergencies, these states of emergency. And, um, you know, so we're dealing with this thing and it's, you know, so getting back into and grounded into reality, um, you know, my mom doesn't handle these things very well. Right. And so essentially, you know, she says to Bob, well, you know, it, and, you know, there's also there's delays in the healthcare system because of the state of the world and, and just how the system works in general. Right. Like everyone always says, oh, we can't have socialized medicine. We can't have universal health care because of the wait times. But I mean, right now, Bob's already you know going to be waiting, you know, six months to a year for this very necessary surgery. Uh, so it's sort of like when they post pictures of people. Uh, living in like a like a Hooverville or like sorry what's the term I'm looking for here like a like a campsite you know people that live like on the streets in like tents and they're like this is what the United States will look like under socialism and it's like this is a picture of the United States right now in capitalism what do you mean you know what I mean it's, it's like this is what the world would look like if socialism takes over and it's like this is the world right now in cap these are live pictures and this isn't like an artistic rendering these are photographs of homeless people now in capitalism what does that mean um and you know it's sort of like well your wait times are going to be super long if everyone has access to healthcare and it's like the wait times are super long now and i'd rather wait and then it be free than wait and it cost me my house but you know that's hard to that's again that's a hard sell for some reason. Um, and, and there's no way to put it in terms that people understand um, because they just don't want to. And so, you know, we're dealing with these issues and my, my mom essentially says, well, you know, if this was so, if this was so important, if this was so vital, then they wouldn't keep putting it off. You would have had it already. Um, which she did the same thing to me when my appendix ruptured. Uh, she thought I was making it up. Um, and, you know, she's like, well, you know, if this surgery was so important, if your condition was so was so bad, so degenerative, and you needed the surgery so bad, they wouldn't keep pushing it back. It's obviously not as important as you think it is. And then she went on to say, you know, um, you know, if, if we, you know, what are we going to do if we can't afford this surgery? If, if you know, the conditions of your being laid off are are met prior to you having the surgery, having access to the surgery and you no longer have insurance, how are we going to afford this surgery? Alluding to, well, if we can't afford it, you can't have it. Like, if we don't have insurance, you can't have Well, you never can afford it. So if you don't have insurance, you can't have the surgery. And then essentially, you know, it, it boiled down to, you know, there's like a time constraint. And if you don't have the surgery within, within the year, then you might as well just not get it because we're not going to be able to afford it. And for every other reason, you're not going to be able to find a new job anyway because you haven't had the surgery and because of everything going on. So... 
you know, and you can't start a new job, you know, physically disabled, essentially. And it just, it, it boiled down into this whole thing where, you know, time and money, right? And, and mostly the money aspect where if we, if we can't afford it, you might as well just not get it because, you know, or do you really want to, is your health worth bankrupting us or whatever because of this situation that is out of your control? Uh, and also, you know, like you're under time constraints because of, you know, the need to get the surgery under your current insurance, which is based off your employer, and then also have the surgery and recover within the time, not only that you're still under the insurance of your employer, but still employed by this employer so that you can then, you know, recover enough to go on a job search for another, you know, manual labor position, another plant position. Um, and I don't know if you can imagine, but those things are hard to hear, right? It, it, it's hard to have your body, your physical body, your actual health, your, your you know, well-being, your livelihood, uh, put in an ultimatum against your family and mostly against money, right? It's, it, it's hard to put a value on the human body, and except Texas, where it's $10,000. Um, but to have the value of your body in, in this reconstructive surgery not even be valued at, you know, in, in this amount is, is terrible. And, you know, you have to imagine where, how Bob would feel, right? So, I mean, he, and, and this is a hard conversation to have with anyone. And, and this is a hard conversation to have with anyone. So no one has this conversation, but I think that if you had this conversation, obviously it would hurt some feelings, but I think it would really change the political standings of a lot of people in this country. And so I'm about to have it uh, with you. And the idea is that there are no winners. There are, and there are, and this is in the proletariat. Let's talk about the proletariat, right? We're not talking about the bourgeoisie. We're talking about the proletariat, the have-nots. There are no winners in the proletariat in a capitalist society. There aren't. There are no winners. And that is to say, well, if they're not winners, are they losers? Yes. Everyone is a loser in the capitalist society. At least in our version of capitalism, in our class, and if you're talking about the proletariat, there are they're all losers in our system, and it doesn't matter, and you lose definitively at the end of the game, right? It's like, yeah, you know, I mean, you can obviously lose multiple times throughout the game, but you lose definitively at the end, and and what I mean by that is, of course, this is like a whole like. Uh, you know, rich versus wealth versus whatever, you know, all that shit. But what I'm here to say is this, right? So Bob is is 60 years old, right? So he was born in 1961. It's 2021. He's, you know, 60 years old. And he's worked in manual labor essentially since he was 16. So, you know, what is that? 40, 44 years, right? So it's like 40, let's just say 40 years. Let's just say, you know, four decades of manual labor. And that, that includes working at, you know, different, um, it, one, of his, one of his first jobs uh, outside of working for his family was working for Hershey's Ice Cream. Uh, and, and, you know, he worked in uh, this big um, packaging facility for Hershey's Ice Cream where they would pack the trucks, right? And so it was, you know, sub-zero temperatures, uh, you know, you're packing this packing freight of ice cream, essentially. So he worked for Hershey's Ice Cream, and then he worked for uh, Fleetwood Travel Trailers. 
and you know, so they made RVs and 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 whatnot. Um, he did work there at Fleetwood, and I think that he had a retirement plan. I don't know if they closed or what happened, but when he left, you know, he cashed out his benefits and everything. And that was, you know, a mistake, unfortunately. But when you're young and you still have, you know, decades more of work to do, you can use that money to to build, you know, assets, to build a life. You know, use that money to pay for a down payment for a house or pay for a car or do whatever, right? And so, um, you know, he cashed out his benefits. He worked for Fleetwood for a long time. Then he had a home improvement business with his father and his brother. Uh, and that's around the time that I met him, right? So... Uh, they would do home improvement. They would, you know, uh, they did some, they built houses, they built decks, they finished basements. They did basically everything that um, residential construction, right? It's pretty much, they called it home improvement, but it was, it was essentially residential construction. And, you know, that lasted until there was some family issues. Um, you know, a lot of stuff happened early on. So that was, you know, let's say tw- uh, well, 20 years ago, I guess, you know, when I came into his life. So 20 years ago, and then for the last uh, 20 years or so, or not the whole thing, so for the last, de- let's just say the last decade at least, um, he's worked, you know, for Creative Urethanes, right? And he's uh, worked his way up, um, and that unemployment after the family business fell through until he got to the job at Creative Urethanes, that was difficult, right? But he worked his way up, and now he's a shift supervisor there, um, and of course he delivers pizzas on the side, so he works... Um, like 14 hours, he works like four, um, I guess they're 12 hour days, like four 12 hour days a week at Creative Urethanes, Monday through Thursday. And then Friday and Sunday, he delivers pizzas, right? And Saturday is, is his day off, but he's been working every Saturday for like the last few months anyway. So he pretty much works seven days a week, uh, two jobs, and, you know, they've all been manual labor for the last four decades. And, you know, it's gotten to a point where four decades of manual labor and Bob takes things to the extreme, right? Like he, he is the hardest working person I've ever seen, I've ever met. And he works hard. I mean, that's just, and he pushes his body and he's done so for four decades and he's treated his body probably not the best. You know, I would definitely say he hasn't treated his body as as good as he should have, as good as we now know is necessary uh, with modern science in modern healthcare, but he's definitely pushed his body to the limits to the point where after four decades of, of extremely difficult manual labor, his body is done, right? And this is what most people would say, well, this is when you retire. Because uh, his body is physically done, right? It's gotten to a point where he's worked his, he worked his body so hard that his, his spine has essentially given up. And because his spine has essentially given up, it's caused his arms to give out, right? And it's caused his arms and his neck to give out to now he has like, you know, he's lost like the muscle mass in his arms and a lot of his movement and ability in his neck because of the pressure and the, the you know, hard um, manual labor, the, the stress that is put on his back. And it's like, well, okay, well, then you should be able to retire, and I agree. And I think that most people would agree. But for some reason, people don't vote for the people with the platforms that agree. And I think everyone would agree, right? I think that if I don't think that there's a single per- there's never been a politician in the world that has worked as hard as Bob has. I'll say that uh, there, I have no problem saying that statement. I don't think that anyone would disagree with that. I I don't think that there's a single person on earth 
who would disagree that there has never been a politician on this planet that has worked as hard as Bob has. At least a modern politician. I'm not going to say like Hammurabi, you know what I mean, or Muhammad. I'm sure that they they had their own struggles, right? You know what I mean? But I'm saying in, in terms of modern global politics, so from the period of enlightenment forward, there has never been a politician that has worked as hard as Bob has. And I think that everyone would agree there's no politician in American politics today that has worked as hard as a lot of hardworking people, blue-collar workers in the United States. And I think that every single person would agree that at some point, especially four decades, you would think four decades of putting your body on the line, manual labor, that you know, going on five decades of manual labor, that you should be able to retire. And I think every, every voter would agree to that. And I don't, maybe it gets lost in translation in, in platforms or in political speeches. Maybe it gets lost in translation. But for some reason, people don't vote for pro-workers uh, politicians. People don't, people don't vote pro-labor. They don't. I, and, I, and it's because of this American dream where, and there was a quote, I can't remember who said it or where it came from, but it, it was essentially... Americans don't view themselves as the exploited laborers. They view themselves as the delayed billionaires, right? I, they, view themselves, they don't view themselves as the laborers, the proletariat who are being exploited. They view themselves as the bourgeoisie that just hasn't gotten there yet. You know, the, we're billionaires, we just haven't gotten there yet. And if we keep striving, we'll get there. They never view themselves as the, as the laborers that's, that's being exploited. And that's part of the American mindset, right? And that's, that's been a thing for, you know, since we were, you know, colonies. And so for some reason, it gets lost in translation where we don't, we are all laborers, but we don't support pro-labor candidates. And there's one in particular that, you know, got the short end of the stick. That was Mr. Bernie Sanders. Um, and so then we get to a point where it's like, well, this person should be able to retire. This person should have all sorts of benefits. Um, the same thing with military too, which everyone, you know, they, they scream red, white, and blue, you know, put a boot in their ass is the American way. And they never vote pro military. They, they vote pro defense, right? Like pro defense budget, pro defense spending, but they never actually vote pro soldier, you know what I mean? And it's like people bro, like people vote uh, pro-jobs or pro-productivity, but they never vote pro-laborer, pro-worker. And, and that's the thing is people value concepts more than the actual people. And that's, that's you know, a whole thing. I mean, you could talk about love and that too. People value love more than they do than they do partners, right? The idea of love more than they do partners, just like people value productivity, especially the wealthy elite uh, value productivity more than they do the actual producers. Uh, look at Jeff Bezos, right, and Amazon. Anyway, so we don't we lose that in translation. So now Bob is at a point where everyone would agree he should be able to retire, but the system in place doesn't allow it. And the system in place doesn't allow it because he doesn't have the resources to retire. I mean, he's like I said, he's worked in, in manual labor for I, I couldn't do a week of Bob's of the jobs that Bob has had. I couldn't I probably wouldn't last a week. Right. Maybe maybe a week if I was lucky. But I doubt I could last. I doubt I could last a, a month for sure. There's no way I could last a month doing any of the jobs that Bob has had. And yet, for some reason, you look at what you have to show for it 
and it's not what it should be. And this is also the idea that there's no billionaire in the world that works harder than your blue-collar parent. There's not. I don't care if your parent is a, you know, a mason or a smith or a bricklayer or a candlestick maker, um, a hairdresser who's on her feet for, you know, eight to ten hours a day or flipping burgers or, you know, making sandwiches, doing deliveries, you know, sewing or, or whatever. Literally, there's no blue-collar laborer or there's no billionaire. There's no billionaire alive and few millionaires, few millionaires, but there's no billionaire alive that works as hard as your blue-collar parent. There's just not. And it's not just what they do on, on the clock. It's what they do off the clock, too. Like, they, they spend 8, 10, 12 hours doing this, this blue-collar manual labor, and then they come home and spend the rest of their day, you know, building a house, you know, home building. Like, I mean, developing a house, raising kids, cooking, cleaning, doing all the chores, paying all the bills, you know, doing everything off the clock, which is basically another another job or three. And you can't tell me that Jeff Bezos, who can shoot himself into space or sail around the world on his, you know, $500 million super yacht, could last a, a, a week putting on a roof in July. He just couldn't. He couldn't. He couldn't last a week in a polyurethane manufacturing plant in, you know, 400 degree oven and, you know, with the pressing, pressing molds and, and, you know, molding plastics and shit like that. You're like, there's no way, right? There's no way that he could even last a week in one of his own warehouses. And you say, well, you know, people should be paid based off of the value of their labor, but they don't mean that. They don't. Because if they did, there would there would be either no billionaires or the roles would, would reverse, right? Because if you do no work and just make passive income, then you're that's not active labor. That's not a value of labor. That's uh, you can't value labor and then prefer passive income, right? It just those are uh, those are opposites. They just don't go together. But that's how society works, right? And so, you know, unfortunately, you look at someone like Bob or millions of Americans over the last few decades, and they do manual labor for decades. And it's not that they have nothing to show for it, but they don't have the assets and the resources that they should at the end of their time. And that's what I mean by there's no winners in capitalism. You know, there's no winners in the proletariat. They're all losers because you spent your entire life working, literally working your body to the bone. Like when they say blood, sweat, and tears, it's not just, it's not figurative. It's literal blood literal sweat, literal tears, working your body to the bone because there's no muscle left in your body because you have a degenerative condition from years of manual labor, decades of manual labor that has left nothing but bone. So working your fingers to the bone and you you essentially have nothing to show for it in terms of the ability to retire and to take a break, just rest. You can't even rest and, and enjoy your life. And settle down. You know what I mean. Settling down is not finding a finding a spouse and finding a place to live and maybe raising a family. Settling down is what happens after four decades, five decades of manual labor, where you get to rest for ten years before you're put in a box or a jar of dirt. That's settling down. 
And people don't get to do that. And that's unfortunate. And this is a hard realization to tell someone who not only is is on the the latter end of that, you know, the far end of that in terms of age, amount of years in the uh, in the workforce, uh, you know, it's hard to tell someone who is who has put in all that time and effort and sacrificed their life, their body, their time, their resources for that for their entire life, but also someone who voted for that, that this is the consequences of their actions. It's like, oh, look, it's the consequences of my actions. That's that's hard to say to someone, right? Not only, you know, you're essentially saying, hey, you wasted your life doing this manual labor where you probably would have the exact same shit you had, maybe a little bit less, but probably the same shit you had doing something that didn't deteriorate your body because now you just, you know, you can't quit. And also, the reason you can't retire and the reason that you have to choose between your body and, you know, rebuilding, reconstructing, saving your physical body and the resources and livelihood of your family is because of a system that you've kept in place uh, by voting for those things over the last four decades as well. And that's something that a lot of Americans aren't ready for. And that's something that is going to be difficult to to get out there. But these are conversations you have to have, right? When people ask, well, why does it have to be this way? Because you made it so. And that is something that you have to be delicate when you say. And a lot of people in the left... I, there's no such thing as as tolerant left, and there's no such thing as a tolerant right. Everyone's intolerant of everyone. That's the that's the American way, and but the left is specifically who is who is legitimately correct in their assessments, right? This isn't whether your politics are right or wrong. I'm not gonna get into that because you know how I feel, and that's you know I don't know if there's an objective right or wrong there in politics. I think that there's an objective morality. I don't know where it comes from. Uh, but you know, that's a whole conversation for another time, but in terms of your assessments of cause and effect, which can be boiled down to a scientific method, like there's a methodology to discovering if you do this, if this, then that, right? That's scientific method, right? If this, then that that's observational, you know, and, and to say, you know, because that is observational, you can say, well, why is this the way it is? Well, because you did that. This exists, therefore that existed, or or this existed, this exists because you did that, or because of that. And so if you did this, this exists, and to say that to them, say, well, why does it have to be this way? Why is my life so shitty now? Why am I not reaping any of the benefits that I thought that I was sowing over the last four decades? And it's because, well, while you were doing that, you were also enabling other people to... T- manipulate the system and take advantage of you and they could reap what you sowed before you could and because you gave them the power and the authority to do that you 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 voted to put people in place who manipulated the system to give themselves the authority and therefore you essentially gave themselves the authority gave them the authority to get to the field that you were sowing and reap the field before you could even get back to it and that's what entitlement programs essentially are in the United States now. You know, that's why my generation, Social Security means nothing to us because it's, it's been completely depleted uh, by every everyone else to the point where, you know, we would like Social Security 
And it's sort of like, well, we are at a crossroads where if we pay into Social Security, we're never going to see it because the the generations before us, because they voted for conservative politicians who didn't believe in, in taxation of the right people or taxation at all, meaning that there was no tax revenue. If there's no taxation, there's no tax revenue, meaning there's no entitlement programs. Therefore, for our generation, there's not enough money in our Social Security pool to support us. But if we continue down that path, it ends with us. Social Security essentially ends with my generation. And we're at a crossroads where if we're truly altruistic and truly believe in social safety nets and entitlement programs and protecting the general welfare of our country and our posterity, then we have to pay into a system that we will never benefit from so that the next generations may benefit like the original generations did. And that's a hard sell for a lot of people. You know, it's, it's a hard sell to say, hey, you know, you're going to have to do something and, and you're going to have to plant a seed that you're never going to see grow into a tree. But someone's going to pick the fruit from that tree and they're going to be very happy and they're going to look back and they're going to thank you, even though you're never going to hear their thanks. And a lot of people in my generation have a lot of resentment towards the older generation for not choosing that for it's sort of like when you pay it forward at a, a fast food restaurant, right? And you pay for the order behind you and I guess to a person they don't and they stop it. And it's like, well, how come everyone else got it? But me, you know, why did I have to get, why did I have to get behind the one person who is a dick and doesn't care about the people behind them? And that's basically what American politics is. And, you know, obviously I have my own opinion on all this, but that's, that's where we are. And this, that's a hard sell to say, hey, you know, throughout your life, throughout your, you know, labor prime, let's call it that, throughout your labor prime, throughout the majority of your life, you voted in elections and you elected politicians and those politicians made it this way. And because of that, the systems that they put in place years ago now that you are at this age, at this point in your life, at this crossroads in your life, where you would you would think you would expect to benefit from things, you weren't paying attention enough to know that you were electing people that took all that away. And that's hard to say to someone. And that's where we are essentially with my family is the things are the way they are because of choices, not just if you can't put all that blame on one person, but you put that blame on a generation because as a populace, if we are a democracy where the majority rules, then things are the way that they are because of a majority, we're going to blame that majority. And that majority happens to be that generation. And that's someone's got to take responsibility somewhere, right? And we have a lot of problems with that, again, in society, is where the buck stops. And the, the buck has to stop here, right? And... You know, to tell to tell Bob, hey, you've worked for decades, for four decades of manual labor. You have sacrificed everything, including your body, to the point where your body needs rebuilt or else you're just going to fail and you're going to die. But we don't have we you haven't accrued any resources or you haven't accrued enough resources or enough assets to support that to to as a safety net. And. You know, now, additionally, you know, you personally haven't built a safety net and you've also, you know, are partly to blame, somewhat to blame your decisions and your voting record is to blame for there being no social safety net that could have could have helped you since you didn't develop a safety net. And that's that's the 
that's again the crucible. That's the issue of conservative politics in the United States is they manipulate and trick people into giving up their own personal safety nets, and then they manipulate the public into giving up the public safety net, all for the benefit of the wealthy elite. And then you get to a point where we are now in American politics, which this is the fall of the American empire, where we are at a point now where this generation that we're in, the generation of Americans that exist today, have the cho- have no individual safety nets, right? Essentially, as a generalization of every American alive right now, every American citizen alive right now, there is not enough, there are not enough resources and not enough personal assets for individual personal safety nets due to the cost of things in the market. It's just impossible, which means that we are at a, at a point, at a crossroads uh, in society where because that's the case, because we've fucked the system so much where no one has an individual safety net, we need social safety nets to save us. And there is a group of, there are, is a group of people that are very adamant and pro safety nets and recognize this. There's also a larger group of people who don't want to recognize this and are stuck looking at things through the lenses of the past, right? And and that's sort of the thing where the other group of people are so anti-public safety nets because they believe in personal safety nets because they're out of touch with reality. And because of that, because of being out of touch with reality and because of the manipulation that they have on people and and the effect that they have on people and the spread of misinformation and and the way that our system works in this country, especially with the rigging of the systems, you know, the gerrymandering and and, and just the the way that these, you know, these systematic uh, barriers to (laughs) progress – we're at a point where if we don't make a turn, if we don't make a change, we're not going to have any public safety nets either, and it looks like that's where it's going. And so when there's no private safety nets and no public safety nets, that's when our country fails. That's when we're a failed state, and we're knocking on that door. And it's the same thing with every other issue as well, right? I mean, look at race relations in our country, right? We've we've basically gone back to to where we were, you know, a, a generation ago, if not a few generations ago, and we're just going backwards, you know. And and the other one, the big one is the environment where people are people are asking for private safety nets for the environment, like use, you know, use paper straws, use metal straws, recycle. You know, reduce, reuse, recycle. Take things into your own hands and do your part to stop climate change. But that ignores the fact that the majority of, of issues with climate change come from mass producers, large-scale producers, you know, big industries, including the government itself. You know, a lot of the, the majority of waste in our country comes from the government itself. And you're saying, well, if I, if I use, you know, reusable utensils, and, you know, I guess wash my ass with a rag, with a, with a, with a wash rag instead of toilet paper or, you know, whatever, and not use single use plastics, then maybe I could save the world. But we need a public, we need a public safety net for the environment because the, you know, percentage of change that I can enact with using a paper straw is just not enough. Right. And, 
that's the issue here is we need these public safety nets and they're just not there. And some issues, it's going to get to a point where it's going to be the same thing that happened with social security in my parents' generation is going to happen with environmentalism in my generation. It's going to be like, well, what's the point? The next generation is not going to benefit. The next generation is going to die anyway. They're going to fend for themselves. Why even care about consumption anymore? Why care about plastics anymore? Why care about the environment anymore? When there's no, there's no social safety net, so why should I worry? Well, there's no public safety net. Why should I worry about a private safety net? And that's what's going to happen. I think there's going to be a resentment where it's like, hey, you didn't force these big polluters to do anything. I'm tired of doing my part when it's, it's just it, it's futile. And so, you know, that's sort of the issue with, with that. And, and that's, you know, a, a macro model of what's going on in my family right now. Um, but that's not the whole point of the story, right? So that's, um, you know, there's lots of politics and, and lots of social observations in this. But I want to take it back down to my family because that's, that's why I'm here, right? And I'm at an hour right now, hour and four minutes. Um, so those are the issues, right? That's, those are the issues facing my family at this moment. And you're saying, well, Lance, how is that any different from anything else that you've experienced over the the last few years? Like these are just this is just, you know, the the status quo of society in the United States is there are people that see problems and want to solve them. And there are people that see problems in those trying to solve them. Right. That's sort of the the other aspect is, I, I mean, truly like there are. You know, people like me, I see issues and I want to solve them and I try to solve them. And then there are people who see me trying to solve them, but don't see the issue or don't want to see the issue. They only see me and they think that I'm causing the issue. They think that my trying to solve the issue is the actual issue. And that's so strange. But, you know, you're looking at my family, you're saying, okay, well, this is what's going on. You know, there's this costly surgery, there's the stress from dealing with that, the financial aspect. What, what is it that's, that's really putting the heat on? And I'm, I'm going to tell you. So I, um, you know, I, I listened to this conflict on the phone between Pam and Bob and it got ugly, right? You know, um, not that you could imagine going anywhere else. And, you know, they hung up, got off the phone and, um, you know, I'm listening and Bob comes in and, and starts talking and he's saying the same shit that he said on the phone essentially. And, and it, you know, it boiled down to like, Hey, like I'm done with this shit. Like I'm over this, you know, I got my own money. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take my money and, and, you know, go find an apartment or go do whatever and, and deal with this on my own. I can't deal with, you know, the stress that your mom puts on these things and I can't deal with, her and I can't deal with everything going on in my life right now. So I have my own money. I can find my own place and I can be gone and I can deal with it on my own. Right. And, you know, you're probably thinking, well, everyone says that shit. And that may be true. But everyone can be wrong. Everyone thought that the earth was the center of the solar system. Uh, even though it's called a solar system, of course, obviously, that's, that's a joke. But, you know, everyone thought the earth was the center of the universe. It's not even the center of our own solar system. And everyone can be wrong. And, you know, that's sort of, you know, I guess the point that I want to get at and the point that, you know, what, what's causing the, the conflict there is what that means, right? What, what he said, what it means, what it means to me. 
So, I mean, think back to what I just said and, and, and reiterate what, you know, my, my quote from Bob is, you know, I can, you know, I'm done with all this. I got my own money. I can find my own place. I can, you know, pack up and leave. He's not just leaving my mom, right? He wouldn't just leave my mom. He'd be leaving me too. And how is that fair, right? And I have a lot of feelings about that. And I recorded when this was hot and fresh, right? When this was Little Caesars hot and fresh on my mind a few hours ago, like earlier this afternoon, uh, so like eight hours ago, I guess, when I was recording this, I, I did a version of this because I just wanted to get off my chest. And it was it was crude, and it was loud, and it was angry, and it was it was sad, and it was emotional. And I, and I was... Um, I was at a limit. I was at a few limits and I, I couldn't share that version. I couldn't share the things I had said just because of how crude they were, but how honest they were. But, you know, I'm going to try to say them in a way that's appropriate in a way that you can understand and understand how I feel. And that's, you know, that's sort of w- what this is. And so that's what's been weighing on me is, you know, you're saying like, Oh, like, you know, I'm done with this shit, whatever, you know, like just, Packing up and leaving. And, and so there are a few things that I want to unpack from that. Um, no pun intended, but I'm just going to get into it, I guess. And the first is the idea of handling difficult situations. And I could generalize this about generations, about different generations. Um, but it would be a generalization based off of what I've seen with my own family. And so I'm just going to talk about my own family. And my parents are not good with issues like that. They're just not. My parents aren't good with um, the big stuff, I guess would be the simplest way to put it. They're not really good with the small stuff either, but they're not good with the big stuff. And I've had a lot of big stuff over the last few years. I've had a lot of big stuff over my life. And, you know, the, the thing is you know, I want to look back on some of this stuff. So I, you know, the things I've gone through over the past year, I'm not going to rehash all of it, but I failed the bar exam twice. And the first time that I failed the bar, it was October of 2020. I guess it was October 16th of 2020. And I think it was the 16th, October 16th, 2020. And it was a Friday, obviously. And we were on our way to Virginia beach for this, um, I guess it was an army thing, um, changing of the guard sort of thing for Josh's, uh, company, right? He's in the army national guard or sorry, army reserves. He's in the, he's in the army reserves. Um, no national guard, army national guard. Sorry. It's been a while. He's, he's in the army national guard. We were down there for a changing of the guard type ceremony where he was going to take over as company commander. It's a big deal. And, you know, I'm waiting the bar results and and we're in the car driving down, you know, 95 and driving down 64 and waiting these bar results. And, you know, we're going down there to party and celebrate Josh. And I know that Sandy uh, was ready to celebrate me passing the bar. Like, you know what I mean? They had like a cake and they had alcohol and they had all this shit ready. And so when you find out that you pass or fail the bar, which is coming up later this week, which is nerve wracking. So if you pass... Apparently, they send you an email that says, congratulations, you passed. Apparently, they email you, and then they post it online. They post a list of all the people that have been, have passed and will be admitted to the bar, 
right? So you can go on there and see the list. It's public. And then they send you a letter, I guess, and then you go from there. If you don't pass, they don't call you or they don't email you. And so you just keep refreshing the page. And the moment that you refresh the page and see that it has the list. So you go to the page and there's nothing on the page, right? It's a blank page. The moment you refresh it and there's something on the page, the results page, and you don't simultaneously get an email notification, you failed. And that's kind of shitty. And you go down the list and you see your name's not there and that's it. They don't they don't email you and say, "Hey, we're sorry to inform you or they don't call you and say, Hey, we're sorry to inform you. You find out by, uh, by inaction, right? You, it's, um, you know what I mean? It, it's sort of, uh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for here, but you find out, uh, by not finding out essentially, uh, emission. You, it's, it, you find out, um, it, by emission and you know, you, you look and you don't see your name and there you go. And then you get the letter uh, that next week because they mail the letter out the same day. They mail the, the letters out that Friday. The next week you get the letter that says, hey, you didn't pass. These are your scores. They don't tell you your score. If you, if you pass, you just pass. Uh, and then I think if you want to try to transfer into another jurisdiction, then they'll tell you your score. But I don't think they tell you immediately. Um, and then they tell you your scores, and, and basically you, you can see how much you missed it by. They don't tell you what subjects you missed how many questions you missed, where you missed it. They just tell you your overall score for the MBE and the Virginia Day. Um, and then the the overall, however they, you know, determine the total. And then they say, well, you know, this is the date uh, by which you have to take it again. If you are going to take it again, these are the things you need. Um, all that shit. And then you can also look in, and say, if you got a good enough score on, on the MBE and you want to transfer it, this is how you do it, essentially. Um, but again, you don't find out, uh, they don't email you and say, congratulations or, you know, our condolences. If you get an email, you pass. If you don't get an email, you don't pass essentially, which is shitty. And so I'm in the car and I didn't get an email and I refresh and I see the list and my name was on the list and I looked a thousand times and I was dead silent. Right. And it was, it was a real bummer. And I was in the car with Pam and Bob and I couldn't. I couldn't be vulnerable. I couldn't be emotional because they don't, I don't feel comfortable being that in front of them. I don't feel, I really, you know, at that point didn't feel comfortable being that around anyone, uh, at that point, you know, just because of how things had gone with, with losing Ivy and losing my dad, uh, and the lack of support I had gotten from anyone. <laughs> I didn't feel like anyone cared enough for, or loved me enough for me to be vulnerable. And, uh, so I wasn't. And, you know, it definitely put a, you know, had to tell Aunt Sandy, had to tell my family, had to tell everyone, had to tell the job that I had uh, lined up that I couldn't work for them. And went about the weekend and, you know, again, it put a damper on, but I tried to, I tried to be high spirited, right? Because there's nothing I could do. Excuse me. And all weekend, Bob is in a pissy mood, right? Like a kid, like pouting the whole weekend, right? And I mean, he's like, obviously my mom is upset. She's upset for me. She's upset just for everything. But Bob is like, is like angry and like pouting. And I'm like, okay, well, are you going to say anything? Like, is this, you know, we, we are spending days down in Virginia beach and like you are surrounded by people. We even, we go out to eat at a restaurant. Um, 
to like his, we go to like his favorite restaurant, right? And it's like $50 a plate for all you can eat buffet, seafood buffet is Captain George's. And he is like in a bad mood at his favorite restaurant that we're spending a lot of money to eat at. And he's in a bad mood like around everyone. And he's like, it's kind of like when you, it's kind of like seeing like when I'm in college and you see like your friends are like all like, you know, trying to be like cool and like sharp with other friends. But when they're mad at you, they're like chippy at you. Right. So he's like being chippy at me and Pam, but like being all like, you know, cool with and like buddy, buddy with Uncle Louie and them. And it's like, okay, well, I'm not dumb. I can see this. And so I'm like, I'm getting angry, right? Like I'm getting upset. Like, how are you like, sure, everyone has a right to be upset, but no one has a right to be upset more than me. Right? That's just not fair. You didn't fail, you know. Sorry that that your dreams of coattailing on my success and my wealth didn't come true, but <laughs> you don't get to be upset more than me. Um, which is how I felt about losing my dad and because everyone felt like they were, uh, you know, somehow, um, not, I don't want to say obligated, but everyone felt like they were allowed to be more upset than me and it was my dad. Right. Um, but that's because people are selfish. And so we're in the car, we're heading home and it's raining and Bob's in a bad mood and we're like, well, do you need directions to get home? Right. Like we're in Virginia beach. Do you need directions to get home? Like literally in Virginia beach, like on the main strip, it's like princess street of Virginia beach. Um, and he's like, no, I'm like, okay, dude, like, cool. Like I don't need, see, I don't need directions to get home from Virginia beach. Right. But I go six, I go 64 straight across to, uh, Stanton and then I go up 81. So I go 64, you know, from Hampton, Hampton roads through Richmond, through Charlottesville, to Stanton, and then up 81, straight up 81, back home. Well, no one likes to go that way, apparently, because apparently taking 95 is faster, which if there was no traffic, if not everyone on 95 thought that, or if not everyone thought that and then took 95, it would be faster, right? Because it's a straight shot, uh, you know, the speed limit's higher. And so theoretically, in a perfect world, if there was no other car on the road, taking 95 would be faster. But because everyone thinks that, everyone does it, and therefore it's not faster. And so we're like, cool, we're like, bro, you got it, all right, you take us, you know, 64 to 495 or wherever, you got it, take us where you're going. And we got lost. And I was like, well, bro, like, do you want directions? Like, you know, like, I thought, like, and of course my mom is, is getting kind of snippy because, you know, she realizes Bob is ha- having a toot. and we're also lost, and it's like, well, do you, and I, of course I'm volunteering to drive, right, because I can drive, I'm 25 years old at the time, 26 years old. Uh, I guess I was 25. And it's like, well, bro, I can drive, bro. Like, if you're in a bad mood or you can't see very well because of the rain or you are lost or you just don't want to drive and don't want to be a part of this, let me drive. Like, let me fucking drive. And that's when he, like, snapped. He, like, snapped on us. And he said a number of things, uh, to me and to my mother that were very offensive, very crude, uh, things that I haven't forgiven him for. Um, and he essentially, you know, verbally berated, verbally abused me, uh, for my failing of the Virginia bar exam. And, you know, sort of like, oh, like, 
what's the point in, in taking it? What was the point in taking it if you aren't smart enough to pass? Which, I mean, you know, like, I'm not going to say anything, but, like, I'm a genius, so that was kind of offensive. Uh, you know, what's the point in taking it if you're not smart enough to pass? Why, what, are you even going to, like, what's the point in taking it again, trying again? If you're too dumb to pass it the first time, you're definitely too dumb to pass it the second time because you're even farther from law school, uh, farther removed from law school, and, you know, like, all this shit about, like, oh, like, uh, was is Barbary good enough? Is the program good enough? You know, like, what's the problem? What are the issues? Like, oh, you have to tell these people that you have to turn down the job offer, and so you're never going to get a job offer because you're going to be looked at as the guy that turned down a, had to turn away a job offer for failing, and they're going to tell every other office that you're too dumb to pass the bar and therefore too dumb to work. And, you know, like, going just going off, right? Like, just going off. And, of course, you know, this is sort of like the whole situation with when Ivy's mom rear-ended her car and then she verbally berated me for a number of hours where I just sat there and took it, right? Because that's what I like. I like to know what you really think of me. I want to know what you really think and what you really feel about me. So I'm not going to stop you from going off. I let Get it all out, bro. Tell me everything. I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, grab on to every word and I want to hear everything that you think about me because uh, I want to know the truth. And... Of course, it hurts, obviously, but truth hurts. And so he's going off and just laying it on me. And, of course, you know, my mom and, like, saying all the shit, like, you know, well, basically, like, questioning, like, their relationship and, like, my mom's feelings and, like, talking about my bringing up my dad, which this is, like, months after my dad had passed, right? So, like, kind of a sore subject, bringing up, like, you know, my mom's feelings towards Bob, towards my dad, and, like, just basically just completely tearing our family apart, like, verbally tearing our family apart. And I'm ready to throw hands, right? I don't care if I live or die, right? I, I mean, not just, I don't, you know, but like where I was emotionally at that time, mentally and emotionally at that time uh, in my life, also that specific weekend that I had failed the bar and like that moment where like I was already depressed, then I'm, you know, a, a trigger to that depression was failing the bar. And then now I have this person who was supposed to be my, my guardian and my protector, my father figure, who is essentially saying that I'm, you know, have no value to the world and is not only offending me and offending my failure and calling and, and literally stabbing me in a soft spot, right? Like saying things that he know, he knows, or he knew, I, I don't know why I'm getting the tense incorrect, saying things that he knew was going to hurt me, but also saying things to like verbally abuse my mother in front of me. I'm ready to grab the steering wheel and take us right off the road, right? Like, I don't care. Like, well, I'll play that game if you want to play that game. I don't think that I don't think that you have the balls to play the game as as well as I do, right? Like, if you want to play chicken, I'll play chicken, but I'm not pulling away, right? I, had, I did not value my life at that time, and when you insult me like that and when you insult my mother like that, uh, I don't value your life either, and I'll, I'll take this car right off the road. And, you know, obviously, you know, I've, I've, <laughs> I, I've dealt with those thoughts and feelings since then. Um, but you know, that's how I felt in the moment. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, bro, like, like pull this car over right now, knock if you buck. Right. And like, this is something I've, I've never felt towards Bob. I mean, I've, I've had like inklings of being upset and I've had my doubts, um, certainly, but I've never felt like, Hey, pull this car over you know, like if you think that you're a big, strong man because, you know, you're you're bullying a kid and a woman. If you think you're a big, strong man, prove it. You know what I mean? Like pull this car over and we'll see how it goes. Right. Because I have a lot of I have 26 years uh, of built up anger at the world, at the universe for the way it's worked out for me. 
and I'm also writing, you know, writing a a line of dealing with Ivy and dealing with losing my dad, dealing with uh, COVID and school and graduation and in the bar and unemployment and being poor and then failing the bar and my family's disappointment in me and everyone's disappointment in me, society's disappointment in me, the FOMO from seeing everyone uh, that I went to school with doing well and succeeding, but me, and I have a lot of built up, you know, feelings towards literally everything that's ever happened ever in the universe. And you think that I am not, I haven't been waiting 26 years to unleash that. And one big like dragon fury punch or like a Goku Kamehameha or like a Superman laser out the eye. Like you think I haven't been waiting for the opportunity to unleash 26 years of distress, like pull this car over and we'll see how hard I hit, you know, it'd be like Harry Houdini, right? Um, and so I'm like, okay, like, you know, if if you really feel that way, pull the car over and I'll get out and walk, uh, 400 miles. I don't care. Uh, or you can get out and walk because I'll beat you up and take the keys and we, and I'll take my mom with me. And so obviously that was, that was difficult. Right. And so that's sort of how that situation went. And he, you know, we got home. Uh, and for that week, he like didn't say anything to me, and that's like I guess his way of like saying like an apology. But that doesn't work for me now. At twenty five, twenty six years old, you don't get to abuse me and then not do anything or say anything. And I'm also a person that you know is is very adamant about addressing the elephant in the room, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna exist in discomfort and distress if I don't have to, and I don't have to. Right? It's like the whole give me the strength to change what I can't accept and to accept what I can't change. I can change my surroundings. Right. And, and I can change the people who are around me. And so, you know, he didn't say anything. And then finally I got to a point where I was like, well, if, if no one speaks in this house, I'm just going to kill myself or I'm just going to like explode, like not kill myself, like, like actively like suicide. I'm just going to, my body's just going to literally combust. Like, I don't think I can handle no human communication after everything that's been going on. So finally, I just like, I just, you know, break the ice and, and just, you know, pretend everything's normal. But I've had this resentment obviously since October of last year. So it's been a whole year, literally a year, like almost to the day. And I'll never forgive him for that because he's never going to apologize because he's not man enough to apologize. Um, and that's okay. You know, that's whatever. Uh, obviously I, I don't know if, I doubt that him and my mom ever had a conversation about it, but I know how she felt about it. I know how I felt about hearing it towards her, uh, observing it towards her. And of course I told Aunt Sandy and I'm sure Aunt Sandy told Momo and I'm sure that everyone knows um, because I'm not going to let that shit slide, bro. You're, if you're, if you're going to abuse me or abuse someone I love, the, the least that I'm going to do, the minimum I'm going to do is publicize it. So everyone knows you're an abuser. That's the last, that, that's the, the least I'm going to do, right? Like the least you're getting away with is a bad reputation. <laughs> uh, so I don't play that game. And, you know, so that's how that went. And so basically the point of that is that was my trauma and that was my bad experience sort of coming to a head. And that's how he reacted to my issue, right? That was me. He didn't fail the bar. He didn't take the bar and fail. He didn't go to law school and graduate law school, and then take the bar and fail. He didn't go to college, and then go to law school, and then take the bar and fail. This was literally my failure, and that's how he reacted to my failure, just because of whatever reason. There's no justification for how he reacted, right? So you're looking at that, and then you're like, well, if that's how he reacts to someone else's issue, 
how is he going to react to his own? And that's where we are. And that's, that's, uh, you know, the issue with that. And I think it's an issue that, that really faces, uh, that we really face as a society is men suck. Uh, and of course everyone sucks. Everyone's terrible. Every human being is, is the worst. That's the whole myth. That's the whole like, uh, you know, ethos or whatever, the whole myth about Jesus making the ultimate sacrifice to forgive our sins. It's because literally a humanity is terrible. God's creation of humanity is terrible. And God had to sacrifice his own son, who was basically himself, a, a human version of himself, had to sacrifice himself uh, to make up for... The creator had to sacrifice the creator to save the creation. That's how terrible humans are, right? That's the that's the story of the Bible. Um and you know people are terrible people the state of nature is is one of chaos and so you know looking at these issues and and what to do and the, the issue that I, i'm trying to get at, i'm trying to circle back and how i want to word this men suck right and and that's really there's a a large subsection of the population that is emotionally stunted and typically the, that large subsection of the population is representative of uh, cis-hetero cis adult males, typically, typically blue-collar, typically white, right? So cisgender, meaning that they identify as male be, and they were assigned that gender at birth, heterosexual, meaning that they are attracted to the opposite sex or, or women, um, blue collar, meaning typically of, you know, manual laborers, lower, you know, income, lower class, middle class, you know, proletariat. Um, and I, you know, typically, uh, white, I would say, I feel like, you know, the whites certainly have a lot of issues with aggression that they don't, uh, address, uh, as you can see by the majority of school shooters, um, you know, and, and, and mass, mass murderers, school shooters, serial killers being white. Um, and again, there's definitely an age group, right? Where I feel like there's not necessarily cut off, but certain generations, uh, let's just say 35 and up, uh, that group subsection of the population. So 35 and up white, cis, hetero males, blue collars, uh, blue collar workers are typically emotionally stunted. And that has a lot to do with how we view masculinity uh, certainly toxic masculinity uh, in our society, in Western society, specifically in the United States. And those people typically are, you know, the, the subsection of the population that are the most aggressive, uh, you know, the most violent uh, offenders, um, you know, the domestic abusers, um, and like I said, the serial killers and whatnot. And so that population is emotionally stunted because historically they haven't been allowed the emotional development and to develop the emotional maturity, uh, from a young age, just because of society's expectations and maybe the expectations of society sort of funneling into their own home and their parents not allowing that. And I think that that's changing, obviously, as our population gets more diverse, as we have, you know, more access to better healthcare, mental healthcare, understanding of mental health, um, and, and just, you know, a different society, different societal expectations, more, this globalism has shown us that, you know, masculine figures around the world accept emotional, uh, openness, emotional vulnerability as a sign of masculinity. And so we're sort of 
changing our view of masculinity uh, in the West, in the United States, to accept emotional vulnerability. Uh, but it's slow. It's a progress. And, you know, we're making progress. And, you know, that being said, um, you know, that's sort of where Bob falls into that group, whereas I don't, obviously. Um, Bob doesn't have a podcast where he talks about all of his feelings, thoughts, feelings, and emotions, as I do, my tagline. And um, so he's dealing with all these things, and his his emotional response to things, his the only emotion that he has been allowed to display, and therefore the only emotion that he does actively display, if he shows a great deal of emotion, and it all sort of funnels and channels, you know, it sort of di- uh, dilutes or devolves, I should say, into one emotion, that's that's rage. Because that that's his strongest emotional response, because that's the only one that has been accepted as masculine for his generation in the society that he has existed in. And so, you know, when he's extremely sad, it, it, it comes off as rage towards something that's connected to his sadness. And that is unhealthy. <laughs> I don't, there's no other way to describe that. That is extremely unhealthy. Uh, and that can cost you a lot of things in life. Uh, like it can cost you 25 to life if it goes too far. Um, and that's a problem is that these, these individuals are, you know, as men who are brought up in this toxic masculinity as what is acceptable, viewed as acceptable in society, is rage and anger and, and you know, depictions of strength, physical strength or physical dominance are the only ways to, to let out your, your feelings, right? It's like, me mad, me punch wall. Like, that's how they do it, you know? Pick things up, put things down. And so, you know, he's extremely sad for me as his as his son or his his child, you know, his his essentially adopted child for not achieving my dreams, not realizing my dreams. He's extremely heartbroken for me that I didn't achieve my dream, but he doesn't cry or doesn't it hasn't been allowed to to be vulnerable and and show that he's heartbroken for me. So he just shows it as rage towards the world. And that's not a justification or an excuse, that's just an explanation. Well, the same thing is happening now, is, and this is something that's happening to him, right? And this is like, his body is 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 giving out, he's coming to the realization that he's old, or that he's older, you know, and, and he's, he's getting there, you know, and he's getting, climbing up in age, and, you know, while his age is increasing, his social capital is decreasing, and, you know, things are, are difficult, things are changing, and he's dealing with the social issues I talked about in the first hour, and these are overwhelming, and so he's gotten to a point where, you know, he is at at the edge, at the, at the cliff side, at the ledge, and he wants to break down, but not that he's not allowed to, obviously, in, in my home, any home of mine is a, is a safe place to break down. Uh, as you guys have noticed, but he doesn't feel that way, especially and my mom, you know, doesn't necessarily help because she has, she has stunted my, my own growth in that, in that development, right? She stunted my development emotionally. I had to go elsewhere to find that. Uh, thanks Shepherd University. I really appreciate that. Um, but you know, Bob is not only dealing with, with past societal expectations, the societal expectations that he grew up in, but also the current situation with my mother being the emotional lack of emotional support that she provides. Uh, the, cause it's, it's not that she lacks the emotional support. It's that she's very impatient. 
and that is leading Bob to these uh, this aggressive outburst, right? This this rageful outburst, and that is only is only you know growing the divide, is growing the split in this family, and, and it's only hurting the family more. Um, but the point that I'm trying to get to, because I'm at an hour thirty five, so I got twenty five minutes left is the point of what he said and, and, and what he said out of rage and out of anger that hurt me and is that he was just going to leave. And here's the thing, and I'm, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be coy. I'm going to be upfront. I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest. You know, congratulations. You're the second, you're the second dad to do that to me. Right. I mean, you know, congratulations. You're not the first. Literally the only reason that Bob is in my life, the only reason I'm having this conversation right now with you, with you fine listeners. The only reason that I'm even talking about this is because my biological father abandoned me and left. And now, you know, 20 years later, you're going to get in a fit of rage and say the same thing and do the same thing. The only reason you're in my life is because the dad before you abandoned me. And now you took his spot. You willingly, willingly and willfully, however, whatever word you choose, whatever uh, adverb you choose, you you willingly and voluntarily took his spot as my father figure. And then 20 years later, you're going to abandon me too? Congratulations. You're an asshole. You know, I mean, that's that's as simple as that. Like it's, it, And that's sort of the beauty. That's the, the coin, the two-sided coin of being a step-parent or an adoptive parent is the one side of the coin is you choose to be a parent and you choose to assume the role of parent and you assume you sort of take on the child as your own child, right? You you view them, hopefully, in a perfect scenario, you view that child as your own child regardless of their biological parent and you assume the role of their guardian and caregiver and, and provider. And that's beautiful that you, you, you are willing to be the parent for a child that you have no... You know, you you come in with no obligation to, no you know obligation to. You create your own moral obligation. The flip side of that is, if you ever leave, it means that you willfully abandon a child that you chose. You chose to be in their life anyway, so you created the abandonment, and so you create an abandonment on top of the abandonment that led you into their life anyway. Right? That's the other side of the coin. So if you choose to leave that stepchild or the, or that adoptive child then you are furthering their abandonment issues by abandoning them after you assume that role from their initial abandonment. And if you do that, you're scum of the earth. And that's, you know, that's just how it goes. And I can't imagine, you know, uh, you know, willfully assenting to parenthood, choosing to be a parent to a child that's not yours, and then to their face, saying, I'm going to abandon you just like your biological father did. And it doesn't matter if you're 6, 26, 46, 66, 86, or 106 years old. You're, you may not be a kid, but you always will be someone's kid, right? And that hurts. I don't care how old you are. And I don't care, you know, where I'm at in life or what, I, what tools I have in life now or, or whatever happens to me. That hurts. It fucking hurts, right? Like, it, I can't imagine... Like, you know, it's at six years old, you know, essentially assuming the role of father for a child that you didn't, you know, you didn't, uh, you know, um, create, you know, you, you know, you had no, um, 
attachment to that child and, and you said, Hey, like, you know, I'm going to initiate or, or, you know, create this relationship with your, with your parent. And therefore I'm going to assume the role of the other parent. And especially in the situation that I came from. And then 20 years later, almost 20 years on the dot later, you're going to say, I too am willing to abandon you. What? Has that willingness been there the entire time and just been hidden by, you know, rose-colored glasses or, like, all the glitters weren't gold? Or is this just a new thing? And, like, if so, like, why are you... What makes it so easy for you to abandon me? Is it the same thing that made it so easy for my biological father to abandon me, too? And when will someone else do it again? How can I ever expect to, to find unconditional love in a romantic partner? How can I ever expect to find a significant other or a spouse or a, or a wife or have a family if I have this something wrong with me, this condition where people just abandon me, right? Like people just are so willing to, to abandon me. How am I ever supposed to, to trust anyone or have love where my own biological father abandoned me and then had the nerve to die before making, before making amends um, you know, before fixing the situation or making things right, before, uh, you know, apologizing, like, you know, my own biological father abandoned me and then had the nerve to, to die and leave permanently. And now my stepfather is going to do the same thing. Okay, cool. I guess I'm completely worthless and I'm not worth sticking around for. And, you know, I'm not here to judge the morality of, if, if I wasn't in the equation, um, the morality or the, the weight or the value to be put on a relationship with my mother, right? My mother is not my spouse. I've never been a spouse to my mother. I've known her 26 years. Um, you know, I've known her 26 years and three months and how many days and three days. And I, I get an idea of, of what she's like and, and what she would be like as a spouse because I've seen her every day for my entire life. Um, but I'm not here to judge her as a romantic partner. That's, that's not my position. That's not where I am on the hierarchy. But I'm judging me and my relationship with these people and whatever I have or don't have is not enough or is too much to make someone want to stay. I'm just not good enough. And I've never been good enough. And I knew that. That's the whole reason that I always chase excellence and perfection. And that's the, the reason I, I, I you know, always uh, was striving for academic excellence and extracurricular excellence and went to college and did so well in college and went to law school and did so well in law school. That's the reason I took the bar in the first place was because I was never going to be enough for my dad. And I wanted him to see that one day, hey, I am enough, you know, suck it, essentially. Um, and then he died. So that was that whole journey of, <laughs> of self-discovery and striving for excellence and perfection to be enough was completely pointless because he died before I even was enough. And that's something I have to live with. Uh, that's, that's the last thing I said to his uh, whole corpse uh, when I saw him. Uh, so there was that. And then now it's like, well, okay, well, all those things could, could go to someone who chose to have me in their life, to chose who chose to be in my life, well, they can get the benefit of me. You know, like, hey, I'm a good kid. I'm a good son. I'm a good person. And I've achieved a lot. And I've done a lot. And I'm willing to do a lot. And I have a lot of love to give. And I have a lot to give to 
to you and to everyone, to society. I have a lot to give. And I'm a good person. I'm a good kid. And I am going to do great things. And I will be there for the people that have been there for me. And I will pay back the people that have paid for me. And, you know, my father maybe didn't deserve that. And he'll never get it because he died. But, you know, you as a, as a parent who has assumed the role of parent will get to benefit from those things. And now you're saying that none of that is enough to keep you around? What does a guy got to do to have a dad around here? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what does a guy have to do to make a parent happy around here? And, um, you know, now it's like, well, if you're so willing to leave, then do you deserve that either? And say I pass the bar. Say that four days from now I pass the bar. Do I really want to celebrate with these people? Do they des- do? It's not even do I do I want to? Do they deserve it? Whether I want to or not, do they deserve it? And I think that if four days prior you were willing to walk out of my life and abandon me just like my dad did twenty years ago, and then three hundred and sixty-five days ago you told me that I was a worthless piece of shit for not for not passing this arbitrary you know, uh, you know, barrier and arbitrary, uh, you know, burden to become a lawyer. I wasn't, you know, 365 days ago, I was, you know, less than scum and valueless, a valueless piece of shit on the bottom of your shoe for not passing the exam. And then four days ago, you're willing to abandon me. I don't know if I, I really want to celebrate this achievement with you because I don't think that you were truly there for me as I was striving to do it. And I feel that way about a few people. Uh, I feel that way about a lot of people, honestly. Um, but it hurts the most when it's your dad repeatedly. And, it, it you know, it, it's to a point where, how am I supposed to feel? And what am I supposed to do? You know, because I have more than enough reason to hate. To hate. I just have more than enough reason to hate, honestly. But I have a moral code that I, I can't I can't get around. I cannot I cannot reason to settle or sacrifice my moral code, and my moral code is to be better than Roger, right? My my moral code, which I've had since I was six years old, was to be a better person than my father. And it seems easy, right? It seems like an easy thing to do, but apparently it's impossible for every fucking person. Apparently it's impossible for everyone else but me uh, to hold myself to any sort of standard of civility and decency. And so as much as I have enough reason to hate and to hold this resentment, I still care. And I still, I still feel the pity for Bob dealing with these things. Because they're terrible, and you know, I mean, like dealing with this health crisis, and dealing with this job crisis, and then dealing with the state of the world, and the state of healthcare in the world, and like this global pandemic, and dealing with the economy, and like the status of of the global economy and the job market, you know, today, and like dealing with all these things, and then I know what it's like to, to you know, have my mother there as well, and and deal with that pressure just externally. And then the pressure internally and like how he must be feeling in terms of his emotional, mental health and well-being. I, pi- I pity him, right? I, I do. I feel bad and I want to help. I want to play my part. But I have every reason to say fuck it and like, you know, go die in a hole. And I wish that I could, I wish that I could say that. I wish that I could 
you know, it's like I wish that he was in the hospital bed dealing with, you know, this issue and, like, can't afford his surgery, can't have the surgery, and I could look down on him with, like, the swift hand of justice and say, you know, you pay for what you get. Like Dave Matthews said, you pay for what you get. And what goes around comes around, and this is karma. You know, every for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, and this is your justice. This is your karma. And God doesn't work fast enough for me sometimes. And, you know, this is what you get, and, and like, screw you for, you know, screw you and the horse that you came in on for treating me like this and all that shit you said and, and being so so willing to abandon me. But that's not the type of person I am. And that desire is something I fought off years ago. And that's something that that's a part of my my psyche that I, I literally that was the demon that I fought years ago. And that's something that's just not there anymore. And as much as I wish it, it could be, it's not. And, you know, I, I pity this person, but you can only care so much before they have to do something, too. And that's another lesson you have to learn in, in humanity is I, I can only care so much. But if you don't care enough about me to stay around and you're willing to abandon me so easily, just like my own dad was, then I don't think that you deserve help. I don't think that you deserve the pity. And I'm going to have to actively fight the altruistic part of my heart and say as much as you want to be the bigger person and, and be the better person, you have been. And look where it's gotten you and look where it's gotten them. And it's time to divert that effort and that energy to someone who deserves it. And I don't know where that point is. I don't Hopefully I never have to come to that point with a living parent. Um, but that's where we are, right? And that's, that's a shame. And, and it really, you know, putting that aside, there's that episode of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where Will's dad, I think his name was Lou, comes back into Will's life for a little bit and visits him in Bel Air and is like, they rekindle their relationship and Will like tries to forgive him. And it looks like Will is going to leave with Lou and, and have a relationship with his father, which he didn't have throughout his life. And then Lou comes to the house and says, Hey, like, you know, I got to go. Will's like, all right, like I got, I'm packed. I'm ready to go. Let's go. And he's like, I, I got to go by myself. I hope you understand. And Will's like, yeah, that's fine. And he's like, you know, this has been really great. Like, you know, I love you. Love you, son. And Will's like, yeah, I love you too, Lou. And then he leaves. And Will goes on this, uh, what I, yeah, I could only call a monologue, I guess. That's probably not what it, what it is. Um, but it was real. It was, it, was, it was not scripted. It was based off his real uh, emotions regarding the situation, which was based off of his life and his relationship with his father. And he goes off on this emotional monologue and he says, you know, what what do I need him for, right? Like, he wasn't there to teach me how to shoot my first basket. And I got pretty good at that, didn't I, Uncle Phil? He says, yeah. He wasn't there to teach me how to talk to girls. And, and I, you know, have pulled a lot of fine honeys, don't I? And I, he didn't teach me how to shave. And I, I learned that on my own. He didn't teach me how to drive. You know, I, I figure out how to do that on my own. He didn't teach me how to fight, and I learned how to fight on my own. He says, yeah. And he's like, you know, I wish I hadn't spent all this money on this statue. And it's like this father and son, like, ape or statue or, like, gorilla statue. And then he's like, you know what? Um, 
you know, I'm glad he left, you know, and he tells Uncle Phil, he says, there's nothing that he's like, I'm going to, you know, graduate on my own. I'm going to go to school and I'm going to graduate on my own. I'm going to, you know, find love and get married on my own. I'm going to have kids on my own. I'm going to have a whole bunch of kids and I'm going to love them and I'm going to raise them. And there's nothing, there's not a damn thing that that man can teach me about how to love my kids. And Uncle Phil's just standing there looking at him, and Uncle Phil's crying. And that was, that was a, a legitimate reaction because he didn't he didn't know that that was happening, and he he realized that that was actually Will Smith saying that on camera. And then Will looks at him, and Will is, is obviously visible, visibly angry, visibly upset. And you know, he says, "There's not a not a damn thing that that man can teach me about how to raise my kids." And he looks at Uncle Phil, and he says, "How come he don't want me, man?" And I, I saw that when I I think I saw that the first time when I was in high school, and then obviously with the with the onset of Facebook, I'm pretty sure I got it on Facebook in 2011. Um, you know, I watched the fresh print, the Fresh Prince uh, on TBS and on Nick at Night um, at Momo's house during the summers. You know, when I wasn't in school, and then with the onset of the internet and Facebook in 2011, the first time I saw that video on Facebook in 2011. You know, that clip, I shared it. And I shared it and I said, I'll, I will always share this for the rest of my life. Whenever I see this, whenever I see this clip of Will Smith talking about his father abandoning him and how come his father doesn't want him, I will always share this. And if you go on my Facebook, you will see that every single time that I see that clip, every single time, I don't search for it, right? I'll go watch it on YouTube, but I don't search for it. Every single time that that clip comes across my page on my newsfeed, I've shared it over the last decade, over the last 10 years. Every single time I've seen that clip, I've shared it. And it's because that's the realest clip I've ever seen in my life. And it, that's how I feel about, that's how I felt about my dad, and that's how I feel about Bob. Now, today, is, you know, how come he don't want me, man? How come he don't want me? How come, you know, was I not enough? Like, how come... How come my dad didn't want me? How come I wasn't enough for him to stay faithful, to stay true, to to stay in my life? You know, how come I wasn't enough for him to change? To change, you know, not just not just when I was six years old, but when I was twenty six. How come I wasn't enough for him to to change or or to to not you know die at the hand of the needle? Um. And now it's like you know with all the shit with Bob and like Bob's issues has nothing to do with me. And hardly has anything to do with my mom. And you're still willing to leave and abandon me? How come you don't want me? You wanted me before. 20 years ago, you wanted me to be your son. How come you don't want me anymore? And that... I would never wish that feeling on anyone. At any age. And to experience it once is the worst experience of your life. To experience it twice... You, you you can't imagine what that feels like. You know what I mean? Like, to whoever's listening, who's ever made it this far, I'm sorry that you had to listen to this. But, I mean, you can't imagine how that feels. And it's just something I have to live with, right? Because I can't, like, confront him about it because what's he going to do? Just get angry and say it again? Cool. That really worked, you know? And that's just, that's just how it goes. And 
there's nothing I can do about it, I guess. And I have to take it as it comes. But we're, we're closing in on two hours. It's hour 55. And um, I just want to say that, you know, I, I want a lot of things in life. And I, I really want to be a, a, a friend and a lover and a significant other and a, and a spouse and a husband. And I want to be a father and I want to be all those things. And I can't imagine having those things and then just walking out and just leaving them. I can't imagine. And maybe it's because I've, I've lost them so many times repeatedly that I value them more. But... I want them so bad that it hurts and I want them so bad. And I post all those lame things on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And I post all those shits and I post all my Instagram stories and all the women that I want, see them and ignore them. And all my friends see my calls for help and ignore my calls for help and my cries for help. And, and, and again, like all the, all the women that I, that I love and, and wish that I was with, they see them and, and they just, you know, scroll by and it's, and they're like, well, Lance is, is, you know, obviously has something wrong with him that he wants this so bad, and that's the reason he doesn't have it. And that that's probably true, right? You know, you try so hard and you get so far, but in the end it doesn't really matter. Um, but I want them so bad, not just because I am lonely or, uh, like, whatever, like a sad boy. I want them so bad because of what I've experienced. And I can't imagine ever letting them go. I can't imagine ever just walking away and abandoning those things, especially that you've built, the things that you love that you built, crafted truly through love. And, you know, so that's just, if you ever see those posts and you think, wow, Lance is such a sucker, Lance is such a helpless romantic, Lance is such a, a loser who, like, is trying too hard to find a woman, all he cares about is finding love, you're right, it is all I care about because I've lived without it. And maybe you haven't lived without it, but I can tell you I'd much rather be you than be me because I know what it's like to not have it, and I won't forget that. And, um, you know, I just want to thank the, the people out there, and if you have anyone out there who is who is stuck by you and and has, has shown you love, whether it be – it doesn't have to be a parent. It could be anyone. But people that in the darkest of times, in, when, in the deepest of shit, they didn't just walk away. You know, I mean, they don't they don't do it for thanks. If they stay, they don't do it for thanks. But tell them thanks anyway, <laughs> and just tell them you love them. You know, and and that, that's pretty much it. Is is you know, tell them you love them. And so yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, I appreciate you know getting this this off my chest, and I'll deal with these emotions one way or another. But um. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. That's that's all I ever really needed was someone to listen. So, from me to you, I love you dearly. Uh, thanks for being my neighbor. <laughs> and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Late Nights with Lance. I'm your host, Lance Gunner Wines, signing off.